Okay. We go on, and I hope, thank you, I hope I will not surprise you by sticking to my title. And I will do something not expected these days, although I have some polemics with um, object-oriented ontologists. On one point, I agree with them, nonetheless. The, the era of this, how should I put it, endlessly reflexive transcendental self-questioning, that like direct ontological questions are prohibited. That was the era of the 70s, 80s, and so on. You know, like, let me give you a simple example. If you, you were to ask somebody like uh, Michel Foucault, what is this? Is this a glass of water? His answer would have been, all I can tell you is to give you the episteme, the discursive structure, within which this appears as a glass of water. Like, you are not allowed, and this is why this was a catastrophe for philosophy. Uh, this repressed of philosophy, the great ontological questions, I mean it in very naive sense, then returned in natural and biological sciences. As they say today, if you want to learn, is the universe finite or infinite, you ask uh, quantum cosmology. If you want to learn, do we have a free will, you ask uh, cognitive psychology or brain sciences, no? I, so I will begin, I hope I will shock you here with a very naive uh, uh, beginning. I want to begin by raising the traditional theological-philosophical question. Is there, for us humans, caught and embedded in a contingent historical reality, is there any possible contact with the absolute? Whatever we mean by this term, and mostly we mean a point somehow exempted from the permanent flux of reality. There are many traditional answers to this question. The first classic one was formulated in the Upanishads as the unity of Brahman, the supreme and sole ultimate reality, and Atman, the soul within each human being. When our soul purifies itself of all accidental non-spiritual content, it experiences its identity with the absolute foundation of all reality. And this experience is usually described in terms of ecstatic, ecstatic spiritual unity. Spinoza's intellectual love of God aims at something similar, maybe, in spite of all the differences between his universe and that of ancient pagan thought. Now, at the opposite end of this notion of the absolute as the ultimate substantial reality, we have, and it's already much more interesting for me, the absolute as pure appearance. That is to say, what is the absolute from this standpoint? Something that appears to us in fleeting experiences, say, I'm sorry for the male chauvinist twist spin of this example, through a gentle smile of a beautiful woman, or even through a warm, caring smile of a person who otherwise may seem ugly and rude. In such miraculous, extremely fragile moments, another dimension transpires through our reality. As such, the absolute is easily corroded. It all too easily slips through our fingers, and it must be 
treated as carefully as a butterfly. And I think even Plato is here very ambiguous. His notion of idea is not some substantial, another real reality. Ideas are on the surface, absolutely. Then, a next version of the absolute, popular among some materialists, uh, from de Sade, Marquis de Sade to Bataille, is the ecstatic outburst of destructive negativity. The idea is this one. Since reality is a constant flow of generation and corruption of particular forms, the only contact with the absolute is to ecstatically identify with the unconditional destructive force itself. And a similar case can be made for sexuality. Far from providing the natural foundation of human lives, sexuality is the very terrain where humans detach themselves from nature. The idea of sexual perversion or of a deadly sexual passion is totally foreign to the animal universe. This infinite passion, neither nature nor culture, is our contact with the absolute. And since it is impossible, self-destructive, to dwell in it, we escape into historicized symbolization and so on and so on. Just so the idea, I think it's interesting, although I don't agree with it metaphysically, is that we don't have simply nature and culture. Yes, culture tries to tame, gentrify, civilize some excess, but this excess is not nature. This excess is precisely a radical disruption of nature. Think about, since we are here, where there was a premiere here in München, no, of Wagner's Tristan, you know, it was such an effort that, who was Ludwig von Schor Karosfeld, the tenor, died immediately after singing Tristan. Uh, you have this realm of night. This night is not natural night. It's obviously some deadly passion, which is already in itself unnatural. Then there is yet another version of the absolute, which arises with transcendental reflection. It is no longer the absolute in itself, but the absolute of the, sorry for this confused expression, of the unsurpassable, you Germans have a wonderful word, unhintergebar, you cannot go behind, self-relating, self-beziehung of the totality of meaning. Let me take two cases. Uh, for, a for a consequent historical materialist, Social totality of practice is the ultimate horizon of our understanding, which overdetermines the meaning of every phenomenon, no matter how natural it is. Even when quantum cosmology inquires into the play of particles and waves at the origin of our universe, this scientific activity emerges as part of social totality, which kind of grounds its ultimate meaning. This totality is the concrete absolute of the situation. Or let me take a different example, which will show you this transcendental dimension in a better light. Antisemitism. Antisemitism is not false because it presents actual Jews in a wrong light. At this level, we can always argue 
that it is partially true. Don't be afraid. I'm absolutely not. I don't have any tolerance for anti-Semitism. I'm saying something very precise. Let's say I debate with an anti-Semite. The moment I accept these terms of the debate, okay, let's look at the real Jews. Are they like that or not? I've sold my soul to the devil. Let's say I debate with somebody in mid-30s in Germany, and he says, okay, let's look at the fact. He will say, Germans are, uh, Jews are seducing German girls. What can I say? Probably they do, and it's a good thing they do. <laughs> also, the, he says, uh, many Jews, Jews exploit Germans. Well, some of the Jews were rich, and in a formal sense, they were exploiting the Germans. He says, Jews have too much influence in literary criticism, in art. Well, there is something for it in statistics. So should we say, no, both sides exaggerate, truth is somewhere in the middle? No. We should say that the whole question is wrong. Okay, we should also debate facts. But anti-Semitism is wrong a priori, formally. The question is not, is what they are saying about the Jews true or not? The question is, why does the Nazi universe need the figure of the Jew to maintain its identity? I'm here repeating, most of you know it, my old joke taken from Lacan when he says, it's a very simple, nice insight, that if we have a pathological husband who is jealous pathologically, of his wife's infidelity, suspects her to sleep with other men. And Lacan makes a simple, nice point. Even if all his suspicions are true, wife is all the time sleeping around with other men, his jealousy is nonetheless pathological. Because, you know, what makes it pathological is not the fact. It's not that uh, it's not true, but it's what role, constitutive role, does jealousy play in his, whatever you call it, psychic identity, and so on, and so on. So, you see, we have here, let's say, a version of the absolute, this transcendental, in the sense that whatever the facts, and we can play these games, yes, uh, Jews did have too much influence in, in journalism, whatever, in banking, doesn't, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Antisemitism is absolutely formally wrong. Again, not if, because how you compare it with the facts, but with regard to it, I don't know how should I call it, immanent symbolic economy. It's structured to cover up a lie. And as we know today, with the rise of new populism, the most dangerous lives are lies, uh, lies, sorry, lies in the guise of truth, where all that you say factually is true, but it's part of a semantic field which is in itself a lie. So to make clear what I want to say, I will go back to my first case. Uh, although a historical materialist is a materialist in the ordinary sense of accepting that we humans are just a species on a tiny planet in the vast universe, and that we emerged on our Earth as the result of a long and contingent evolutionary process, historical materialist rejects the very possibility that we can view ourselves objectively, as we really are, from some standpoint external to our social totality. As George Lukacs put it, nature 
itself is always a social category. And there are good arguments for this. For example, just look at the shifts in the notion of nature in the last centuries. Carl Linné, the first biologist, reproduced in his image of nature the hierarchic stable structure of absolute monarchy. Darwin himself, as you probably know, was uh, influenced. He got the idea of struggle for survival from Malthus, from political economy. And today, even biology is influenced by new information, digital techniques, and so on and so on. Uh, 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 but nonetheless, uh, although this is true, it doesn't go the whole way. That is to say, this transcendental absolute, absolute in the sense that whatever phenomenon we are approaching, you can always say, but the ultimate meaning of this phenomenon is overdetermined by social totality of practice, doesn't fully square the circle. It has to ignore or denounce as naive every attempt to bring together the two standpoints. Ontic view of reality, of the reality of nature, part of which we are, and the transcendental dimension, social totality as the ultimate horizon of meaning. And the parallax split is here radical. On the one hand, everything that we experience as reality is, we can always argue, is transcendentally constituted. I don't mean in the sense of an abstract Kantian transcendental subject. I mean more in a Heideggerian way, that this is the big, even Habermas sticks to it repeatedly. Her, uh, transcendental hermeneutic argument against positive sciences. Yes, they may work wonderfully, explain everything, but uh, in order for them to work, you already have to approach nature in a certain way, with certain implicit conceptual apparatus as a co uh, material causal network or whatever, and so on and so on. So the hermeneutic horizon is always already here. Uh, so uh, uh, my big problem, and I'm obsessed with this in my last books, is precisely can we break out of this circle? On the one hand, what from the post-Kantian view appears as a naive realist vision of humanity, vision of the universe where we developed on a tiny planet, blah, 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 and of course in some sense this works. You can even explain evolutionary up to a point our cognitive abilities. And on the other hand, this uh, transcendental reflexive circle that whatever you do, whatever you try to explain, you already move in a certain horizon of, within a certain horizon of understanding. Or they are different, I know, but what? Heidegger would have put it, a certain Lichtung, disclosure of being, what Michel Foucault would have called a certain episteme. Or, why not, what, uh, <coughs> what, uh, what uh, 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 Western Marxists would have said, would have called the horizon of praxis, of social practice. 
in which even our most abstract experience of nature is uh, rooted. Okay, uh, it's my aim to break out of this circle. Now, the first specification I must give is how often we find this transcendental circle also with, uh, without Kantian subject. That's the most interesting thing in the 20th century philosophy. Everybody criticizes the Cartesian-Kantian subject as abstract and so on and so on. But I think, for example, Claude Lévi-Strauss was quite consequent when he described his structural anthropology as transcendentalism without subject. Where do we have the transcendental dimension? In the fact that Claude Lévi-Strauss strictly prohibits genetic question. He says symbolic structure is not here and then it's all, it's all, uh, it's all of a sudden here. And uh, uh, you cannot break out of this, you cannot break out of this circle. Uh, so the ultimate case of a symbolic event, when it emerges such an event, it in a way creates its own past. Uh, here, I want to make another <coughs> improvisation, take provocative remark. Uh, maybe you know this example, uh, but I like to repeat it. Uh, uh, you know, the big uh, Meyasu, Kenten Meyasu, who wrote a book, very important book, uh, after the finitude against transcendental approach, mentions this example of fossils. Fossils like... Uh, Again, he makes the realist, like that. Uh, you can be transcendental, and, but however you play it, you cannot account for this naive realism within the transcendental horizon, which tells you, but in some sense, fossils had to exist before humanity existed. The transcendentalists always have to add something like, yes, but this nature itself is already socially constructed in a certain way, and so on and so on. I agree, that's my point, that transcendentalists do have a problem here. But wouldn't you agree that at the same time, uh, I like tremendously this idea of, of uh, fossils, because the theory is crazy, I hope you know it. A friend of Darwin, a theologist, who clearly saw Darwin's value, scientific, but was nonetheless a devoted Christian, had a problem here. On the one hand, Darwinism is obviously true. On the other hand, Bible is the word of God, it cannot be wrong. And if you read the Bible, literally our world was created 4,000 and something years ago. So how to account for fossils? You know the answer. I love it, my favorite. It's that, uh, God, of course, God cannot be wrong. He created the world 4,000 years ago, but to give us a kind of a false opening, God directly created fossils. In the same sense that on a stage, you create a false background to give a false opening. Now, don't think that I'm totally crazy. I don't believe. <coughs> I don't accept this. But I think it's very good theory of ideology. 
This is for me the truth of this transcendental circle. circle. Doesn't every ideology precisely, retroactively creates the past itself? I like to quote here that wonderful passage, I always like intelligent conservatives, from uh, T.S. Eliot in his Tradition and Individual Talent, where he says that every really new work of art is not simply something new. It changes, restructures the entire past. Uh, so uh, where do we find this problem in history of philosophy? And here, uh, Graham, I want to ask you, I announce you now in the evening, if we meet in a cafeteria, how do you now stand towards Heidegger? Because for me, I cannot bring together Heidegger, and I'm on your side here, with your uh, 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 ontology, whatever you call it. Because for me, no, 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 no irony, sorry. Uh, I will be evil when I will be explicitly evil, no evil meant here. I'm just saying that Heidegger is for me absolutely transcendental. There is no sein, Ereignis, without Dasein. And Heidegger, from his youth, up to his last dialogue, I think, with Eugen Fink, apropos Heraclitus, he says, how are we things, reality, outside human existence? I totally neglected this question. I, 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 don't, uh, I was never in it, and so on. Uh, even with his most famous dealing of this problem, in his seminar, what is fundamental concepts of metaphysics or what, seminar of 2029-30, I think. You know, when Heidegger uses that wonderful, ridiculous but wonderful example of uh, we humans as in their world, in a world, uh, objects, uh, stones as weltlos, without world, and animals, I think, he takes a problem of lizard, and it's always extremely interesting for me which animals philosophers choose. You know, it's never neutral. And he said it's weltarm. Now, Heidegger himself oscillates here and there. Because, you know, the big question, of course, it's elementary philosophical, is this one. If you say that an animal is weltarm, is this a retroactive human determination? Or is this Weltarm, a dimension is missing, not fully deployed? Is this somehow inscribed into the identity of the animal experience, whatever this means, itself? So that the animal is already in itself thwarted and so on. You know who follows here Heidegger? Frankfurt School people don't like to hear this. Uh, uh, Walter Benjamin who also says that, in a way, it's a very, the idea which has a long tradition from Schelling to Heidegger, that uh, human language is not just something which changes human existence, but that there is a mute pain in nature itself, and that human language gives a word to a pain of animal existence which it wasn't able for the animals to articulate, to express. I don't think we can simply dismiss this as anthropocentrism or whatever. It's very, it's very ambiguous. Uh, so uh, let me go on. Uh, there is a wonderful book to explain to you this circular structure of a Russian friend of mine, Alexei Yurchak, about the last Soviet generation. 
Everything was forever, that's the title of the book, everything was forever until it was no more. That's how symbolic totality functions. It's not here, then all of a sudden it's here, uh, the entire past appears in a new way. Now, it's easy to insist on this as an unsurpassable horizon. And again, let me give you another example, like Michel Foucault. For him, what he calls episteme, the precisely thick web of the horizon of understanding, is, the, is again, to use this beautiful German word, unhintergeber. Like, for example, if you were to ask Foucault, do we have an eternal soul or not? His answer would have been that this very question can only appear within a certain modern episteme. And then you cannot move behind it. I agree that we have to try to move behind it. Now, it would be also interesting to note that even the one who is the great opponent of subjectivity, who dismisses almost to the end subjectivity as ideological illusion, uh, Louis Altisset, also remains transcendental, I think. Because we, in him, this idea of overdetermined totality plays exactly this role of transcendental horizon. He, uh, you know how you can identify this transcendentalist, structural transcendentalist? They prohibit genesis. They claim uh, the totality must already be here before you inquire into its genesis. And incidentally, it's interesting to note how Marx says the same, where he says, you know, that's the meaning of that Marx's famous phrase, the anatomy of human being is the key to the anatomy of the ape. In order to develop how humans emerged out of apes, you already have to have the concept. Now I want to do... A, part which will be, I hope, more shocking, surprising a little bit for you. Uh, what interests me so much in Western Marxism is not just this opposition, uh, because again, this opposition between realism and transcendental position is basically the opposition between Soviet-style dialectical materialism, which is naively realist, and uh, Western Marxism, which is, in this formal sense, transcendental. There is a particular level of subjective engagement, experience, practice, which, although it's ontically just part of reality, overdetermines our entire approach to reality. Uh, what, I, what I admire is uh, those Marxists who tried to break out of this closed circle. And I know, uh, I will just mention two figures. Uh, one, already with Walter Benjamin, as I hinted, it's ambiguous. He tries to move out beyond historical experience to, let's call it, cosmology. To understand, again, human language, you have to understand its role into how it changes, it gives a voice to a deadlock of animal experience. Then, of course, it's uh, Ernst Bloch, who also moved to cosmological perspective. For him, utopia, uh, the spirit of utopia, hope, 
does not, he is very clear here, does not concern only human social existence. In a way, the entire development of nature, which precedes humanity, is already opened towards a utopian future. But, and here I will now dwell a little bit longer in all this, uh, I will give you the example which I consider the ultimate uh, example. Uh, it's madness. I will go a little bit more into it because I'm pretty sure that most of you don't know it. Do you know it? No, Ewald Ilyenkov. It's uh, the only Soviet Marxist which deserves to be taken seriously, more or less. That's why he ended appropriately his life. In 71, he killed himself. No, no he was an impossible figure of a, of a sincere Marxist. But already when he was young, in his first manuscript, which of course it was written in, uh, I think, uh, uh, 52, uh, it was never published, but it's a dialectical materialism at its most crazy. It's a wonderful cosmological spiritual vision. So Ilyenkov uh, formulated in this short book, published only in 88 in Russia and now translated into English, he calls it cosmology of the spirit. He relies on uh, the Soviet tradition of dialectical materialism and especially on Friedrich Engels' manuscript Posthumously gathered under the title Dialectic of Nature. This is the bête noir for Western Marxists, the lowest you can go. Uh, so what does he do? He, uh, he brings the dialectical materialist idea of the gradual progressive development of reality from elementary forms of matter through different forms of life to human thought. He brings this to its logical Nietzschean conclusion. If reality is spatially and temporally without limits, then there is overall, with regard to its totality, no progress. Everything that could have happened always already happened. Although full of dynamics in its parts, the universe as a whole is a Spinozian stable substance. What this means is that in contrast to Bloch, for Ilyenkov, every development is circular. Every movement upwards has to be accompanied by a movement downwards. Every progress by a regress. Movement is the cyclical movement from the lowest form of matter to the highest form, the thinking brain, and back to their decomposition into the lowest forms of matter. Ilyenkov supplements this vision of the universe by two further hypotheses. First, the movement in cosmos is limited downwards and upwards. It takes place between the lowest level chaotic matter and the highest level thought. For reasons that I will not go into, Ilyenkov claims we cannot imagine anything lower or anything higher. And now comes this Marxist Gnostic mysticism. For Ilyenkov, thought is not just a contingent local occurrence in the development of matter, but, a reality and, but it has reality and efficiency of its own. It is a necessary part, a culmination of the development of entire reality. 
And now comes Ilyenkov's most daring speculation. Uh, I quote Ilyenkov. The cyclical development of the universe passes through a phase involving the complete destruction of matter through a galaxy-scale fire, end of quote. This passage through the zero level which relaunches cosmic development does not happen by itself. It, quote again, it needs a special intervention to rechannel the energy that was radiated during the cycle of matter's development into a new global fire. The question of what or who sets the universe on fire is crucial. And now I quote a reading of Ilyenkov. According to Ilyenko, it is the cosmological function of thought to provide the conditions to relaunch the universe which is collapsing due to thermal death. It is human intelligence which, having achieved the highest potency, has to launch the Big Bang. This is how thought proves in reality that it is a necessary attribute of matter. End of quote. Now, to make this key speculative moment clearly, let me quote another passage from Ilyenkov. Quote, in concrete terms, one can imagine it like this. At some peak point of their development, thinking beings executing their cosmological duty and sacrificing themselves produce a conscious cosmic catastrophe uh, uh, a reverse thermal dying of cosmos matter, that is, they provoke a process leading to the rebirth of dying world by means of a cosmic cloud of incandescent gas and vapors. In simple terms, thought turns out to be a necessary mediating link, thanks only to which the theory rejuvenation, rejuvenation of universal matter becomes possible. It proves to be this direct, efficient cause that leads to the instant activities of endless reserves of interconnected motion. So this is already madness. The whole universe not, develops, but since it's circular, at the top it has to return to total chaos. And this can happen. He's almost a poet of nuclear self-destruction, Ilyenkov. It's incredible. He claims that this is the highest role of human thought. It's cosmic meaning. At the end, to destroy everything to the zero level. And now, my God, I like this as an old Stalinist. You ain't heard anything yet. Now comes the true madness. He claims that uh, the... Therein resides the cosmological necessity of communism. Because what is demanded for human, from human beings is at the end to radically destroy, explode themselves and the entire order for the benefit of the whole universe to renew itself. And he says a capitalist would never have done it. They are too egotist. Only a communist can destroy everything risking itself for higher future. Uh, a short quote, I love it. Millions of years will pass, thousands of generations will be born and go to their graves, a genuine human system will be established on earth with the condition for activity, a classless society, spiritual material culture will abundantly blossom with the aid of and on the basis of 
which humankind can only fulfill its great sacrificial duty before nature. For us, for people living at the dawn of human prosperity, the struggle for this future will remain the only real form of service to the highest aim of the thinking spirit, end of quote. So, the ultimate justification of communism is that by way of bringing about a solidary society free of egotist instincts, it will have enough ethical strength to perform the highest self-sacrifice of not only humanity's self-destruction, but of the simultaneous destruction of entire cosmos. Another quote. If humanity is unable to achieve communism, then collective human intelligence will not achieve its highest stage of power either, as it will be undermined by the capitalist system, which is as far as one can get from any self-sacrificial motivation. End of quote. Now, Ilyenko was uh, aware that what he is developing is, uh, he calls it, phantasmagoria or dream. And there were many, uh, I think, cheaply metaphorical readings of this text that it that behind this bombastic end of the universe, uh, Milenkov suspected uh, uh, simply the collapse of communism, Soviet communism, or even his own tragic fate, as I already told you, sorry, it was not 71. He killed himself in 1971. But I think that things are more complex here, that... Of course, we shouldn't accept this dream, which is, again, the most beautiful theory of communism that I've heard. That its function is to, not only as conservative sphere, to destroy uh, uh, human society, civilization, no, to destroy the entire world order, consciously. Uh, uh, I think what we should ask is, where is the mistake of this reasoning? I think that... In, uh, in it, we, I think his mistake is the same as the one of Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade, you know, has also a name for this total destruction. He calls it uh, uh, the second death. To put it very simply, de Sade has a very consistent ontology. His claim, first, he was a simple naturalist, the young Sad. He said, if we humans want to be faithful to nature, we should imitate nature in all its aspects. Not only generation, construction, positive, but also negative destruction. So torture, rape, killing, destruction is part of natural cycle. We should joyously assume it. But then Sad made a step further and claimed that in this sense we remain slaves of nature. And we should make a step further and imagine an absolute crime, a crime which is not simply inscribed into this circulation of nature as its part, but a crime which destroys radically natural cycle, nature itself, a break with natural causality. Uh, and this he calls the second death. And I develop, I'm sorry if you know this line of thought, I develop this in some of my uh, uh, books, uh, namely how I think uh, 
Lacan has here a perfect answer, that what the thought doesn't get is death. This second, what he imagines as second death, always already happens even before the first death. This second death of nature is simply the explosion of subjectivity as another dimension in the order of being. Uh, and that uh, what uh, Desat is doing, it's his mistake is where, I'm condensing a line of thought, which you can find more in detail in my book, uh, 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 Disparities, it's that... Uh, his mistake is at the very beginning when he presupposes that there is a full natural cycle of causality, positive order of nature. Here, negativity is excluded, so no wonder that it returns in a brutal way as the total destruction of nature. But what if we accept that Nature is, from the very beginning, inexistent. Nature doesn't exist as a balanced big other, an order of laws, and so on and so on. Uh, <coughs> destruction is always already here, and I think that <coughs> the same goes for uh, Ilyenkov. Uh, what, uh, what, what, he, uh, uh, what he projects, into nature as this necessity of total destruction and so on. He doesn't see that in some sense deeper it already happened. The moment the subject is here, ah, now I will think will become more tricky. Yes, the moment the subject is here, what? According to transcendental reading, it's over with nature, another dimension of negativity emerges, and so on and so on. But I don't want to follow this line, because if we follow this line, we remain in this uh, pseudo-Hegelian, because even Hegel sometimes falls into it, even Lacan most of the time, this opposition between homeostatic natural order and then with humanity, another dimension, negativity emerges, and so on and so on. I think we should go a step further here. What if this type of negativity is already in nature itself? What if nature in itself is not natural, to put it simply? Uh, 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 so, uh, let me now... Uh, 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 and, okay, this, uh, now I come to the concluding part, but things will get more complicated here. Uh, so, uh, this is my problem. I'm not sure now my, I'm addressing not you, but more, uh, uh, more uh, your uh, hour, I hope I can say. I will be very gentle, not best friend. Uh, how is he called, my God, who did that, um, my, uh, his name, who did that, uh, demo who believes in democracy even among objects? Uh. Bryant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Levi Bryant. Uh, 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 his idea is to think objects without subject. In some sense, I agree that it is the task, because I, of course, reject the constitutive role of transcendental subjectivity in the sense that uh, nothing, uh, nothing in some sense, either you say nothing existed before, but it's 
interesting how ambiguous here are transcendental philosophers and even Western Marxists. Like, if you ask a humanist, look at style Marxist. Okay, social practice is already here, but didn't we nonetheless humans emerge out of nature? They, they start to squeeze out. They say, yes, but we cannot say how everything, every answer is already uh, mediated, by social, mediated by social practice or whatever. Even Habermas, when he insists how in all our explanations of nature, uh, 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 what he calls discursive procedures, argumentation, ethics, is already here, then asked, but can we account for it? naturally or not, he squeezes out. His latest position is, I'm an agnostic. I don't know. So, my point is just this one, that, uh, uh, now here comes, if you can answer to it, maybe in the evening, we can go on. My point would be this one, that a transcendental subject is not simply an object among other objects in the world, which is then elevated in an illegitimate way into a central or all-powerful position or somehow constituting entire, the entire reality. Subject is a standpoint, the punctual support of a perspective onto reality from which we cannot abstract. As Kant makes it clear, the Transcendental subject's constitutive power basically designates its faithful limitation, its inability to bypass transcendental frame and gain access to nominal reality, you know. That's the other pessimist side of Kant. Kant is not simply a philosopher of all-powerful subjectivity. In a passage that I often quote from the very last pages of Critique, der, uh, uh, criti critique of Practical Reason, Kant says, let's imagine that we would be able to overstep the limitation of our finitude and gain access to things in themselves. What would then have happened? His answer is not we would be totally free, but we would be marionetten, marionettes, totally submit to, to, to objective causality. So where is here uh, Kant's mistake. Incidentally, Kant's answer is here, uh, is here uh, very close to the answer of, uh, is very close to the answer of, of, of today's, most of today's cognitive science, no? Who claim the title of one of the books that our freedom is a user's illusion. Objectively, we can prove that everything happens at the neuronal level, our freedom is just the way we necessarily perceive ourselves in a wrong way. Now, how to get out of it? Here we may disagree, but my solution is this one. That the same as with Ilienko, as with Desat, we have to abandon the very starting point. That there is out there nature as a fully ontologically constituted complete network of causality. If you conceive nature in this way, of course you then create a problem, but how is it with human freedom and so on and so on. The only choice is then to falsely spiritualize human freedom. But there is another spiritual principle. Now I will again repeat 
one story that in, from my books, then two jokes, and then we are approaching the end. Uh, the story, I'm sorry if you know it, but it fits so perfectly here. So I will repeat it to you. Uh, uh, in one introduction to philosophy, it's a very popular book written by a guy called Nicholas Fern. He, to explain the quantum vision of the universe, he uses a wonderful metaphor, I think, of video games. You know, this so-called uncertainty principle or complementarity, the idea is that uh, Heisenberg was here wrong. Heisenberg, Bohr was more to, up to the point. Heisenberg thought, and there was a polemic between the two, that uncertainty principle simply means we cannot measure at the same time velocity and position. Bohr was more radical. He said, no, it's not that we cannot measure. It's ontological. A particle does not have this property. What does this mean? I will abstract from all the details. It means that in some sense, reality itself, in itself, not just due to our cognitive limitations, is ontologically incomplete. And that's for me the big thing. And this guy, Nicholas Ferrum, produces here a wonderful uh, 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 metaphor, he said. He says, he writes, imagine a video game. And I am forced to imagine it because my son is playing them all the time. You know, if you are in a video game and it takes place on a field, a battle goes on there, in the background you have a forest, but uh, the programmer didn't use time to program every tree because it's not part of the game that you can enter the forest. So why should he lose time programming every tree? Or it's the same with the house. If it's not part of the game, let's say a battle on the street, that you can enter the house, the interior of the house is not programmed. So you get the joke. The joke is that God did the same. God thought, oh, humans are too stupid to penetrate beneath atom. And we, as it were, caught God with his pants down, you know. God thought, oh, it's, uh, why should I bother programming microparticles? That's the limit. But no, we were a little bit too bright for God, you know. So, but uh, now comes, I will not go into it. I'm trying to do this in my last book. The problem is this one. Do we need God for this? Because our spontaneous notion of the universe is that Things have to fully exist somehow. The limitations ontological can only be our human limitations. Like, if something appears incomplete ontologically, it means we don't know it. No, I think that we can think this incompleteness without God. In my craziest speculation, and here maybe you will uh, counterattack, I even think that maybe in a more subtle way, God is, in a sense, one of the names for the ontological incompleteness of reality. But that's another point. What I want to say is that, uh, uh, now, come, my, my God, I love them. This is, uh, to, uh, to, insofar as God, the traditional God, is the name for perfect being, ontological completeness, and so on. I think the best in our Judeo-Christian tradition is composed precisely of the hints of incompleteness of God. 
And then uh, I will quote you a joke, which is it's very strange for me, but no dirty things, no vulgar, very refined theological joke told to me by my Jewish friend from Israel, a joke about Auschwitz. No, no, it's not a racist, neo-Nazi joke. It's a beautiful Jewish joke. Uh, all you have to know to understand this joke is that uh, in modern theology, one of the solutions to the problem of how God could have allowed Auschwitz, such horrible things to happen, is that God was not there. God somehow, it was beyond God. As this is even, I think, am I wrong, the title of one of the books. God died at, at Auschwitz. So God was not there. Okay. The joke is this one, but it's a sad joke, of course, but respectful. In paradise, a couple of uh, guys killed in Auschwitz, but they're in paradise now, walk around, sit on a bench on a wonderful field near a meadow, and tell each other jokes, funny stories about how they died, you know. And one said, do you remember, Simon, that when they were dragging you towards the gas chambers, you slipped on some soap there, and you broke your skull before even you reached gas. And the, oh, good joke, now comes the beauty. Then uh, God comes by, taking a rest also from his work, and listens to these jokes and says, guys, I don't get it. How can you laugh of it? I don't get it. And now comes. This is, and people claim that I'm anti-Semitic. This is Jewish sublimity. For, then one of the Jews goes to God, puts his arms around his, put his uh, hand around his arm and says, listen, don't be sad. You were not there, of course, you cannot understand our joke, and so on, you know. That's, that's how, you know, this incompleteness, even, and uh, this is, I think, uh, what I'm trying to do again, you see, is not rehabilitate some transcendental subject in the sense of creating everything. My question is even a much more naive one. How reality has to be structured in itself, for something like, for, uh, uh, for something like subjectivity to be able. Can somebody tell me so that I don't speak too much? No, uh, you, you spoke now about uh, 50 minutes. Ah, so I still have, yeah, as they say, some concluding remarks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, 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 you know where we... Uh, uh, the big problem for me today, from my standpoint, is how, you know, I'm sick and tired of this idea that you find the worst example is Sartre, Lettre et le Neon. Subject, radical negativity, com uh, confronted to this inertful order of being. How should we think, not by humanizing nature, some kind of antagonism, gap, incompleteness, negativity, already in already in nature itself. First, back to subject. Subject for me is precisely something, I will simplify it very much, something uh, whose uh, very existence is incomplete, but not in the simple Sartrean sense. Let me, uh, uh, to make this point clear, let me, tell you another joke, uh, I hope also 
respectful. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful, and I will use it to criticize the notion that simply uh, the empty void of subjectivity is it. No, I'm here, uh, I don't share here Alain Badiou's point. I think there is no subject without object, because Badiou has this idea of objectless subject. Object is material inertia. I think that every subjectivity is grounded in an object, especially empty subjectivity. Let me give you this joke uh, with my usual stab at political correctness. Uh, uh, precisely, again, how to think subject, but in a realist way, not just transcendental subjectivity. Uh, Maybe you know this joke, it circulates around, it's another Jewish story, even Derrida repeats it and others. It's some, and no, they do it on Sabbath, uh, Jewish believers gather, Jewish believers gather there in a, um, in a, in a synagogue and uh, first a rich rabbi powerful stands up and says, oh my God, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, not worthy of your attention. Then a rich Merchant steps up and says, oh God, I'm also nobody, worthless, nothing. Then a poor ordinary Jew stands up and says, oh God, I'm also worthless, nothing. And then the rich rabbi kicks the rich merchant. Who does this guy think this, no, that he can simply also say that he is nothing, you know? And he was right. That's the trick. Uh, proclaiming yourself nothing may appear a modest gesture, but as a rule, the position of enunciation from which it is spoken, it's an extremely, uh, it's an extremely arrogant, privileged one. And I will give you an example. I hope you will appreciate me. Appreciate it, not me. Fuck me. Appreciate the example, uh, which really I was so shocked. Really happened to me two years ago around at a debate in the United States. I was by mistake, now I call them, part of some politically correct bullshit where the predominant tone was wealthy, white, privileged male liberals engaging in a game of humiliating themselves, self-weeping. Oh, we are guilty for everything. If there is a war in Africa, it must be an effect of neocolonialism, whatever. We are nothing. Europe ruined the whole world, and so on and so on. And then a black guy, a good friend of mine, very intelligent, called Jeremiah Gleick, uh, intervened and said, wait a minute, we blacks are not so innocent. We also, you know, had our own history of destruction. And you should have seen the exchange of glances among these wild liberals. Like, who is this guy that he thinks that he is also guilty for everything and nothing? You know, like, because, but uh, my black friend was shocked. He told me, you see, this is the secret arrogance of this apparent white uh, self-humiliation. Yes, I'm nobody, but this nobody is a mask for universality. My, for example, my old story, I'm sorry how you know it. I was in Missoula, Montana years ago. And I was shocked how there was a round table between some Native Americans, they hate this term, Indians, and white liberals, and one of them used for themselves the term Indian. And white liberal immediately interrupted him, no, you shouldn't use this term, this is humiliating for you, blah, blah, blah. And my Indian friend exploded. 
He said, sorry, but who are you now? You will even tell us how to call our... You know, this is why I distrust this apparent humiliation of... of apparent self-humiliation of white anti-racists. Be careful what arrogant position of universality is, uh, is hidden in this. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, uh, this is why, incidentally, uh, white liberals like the, the black or other races to assume their particular identity. But, you know, at a distance. If Native Americans uh, return to their ritual tribals, excellent, excellent. Blacks, okay. Chinese, yeah, still. With Italians, problems begin. If we West Europeans do it, we are fascists, no? And I think that this is not true modesty. This is precisely secret arrogance. You may you should become stuck to your city, particular identity. We are universal. We are universal. So uh, how should we rethink this universality to make it acceptable? Here, again, to clarify the status of the subject, uh, here, uh, uh, here I would like to, to finish with another story uh, to but, uh, maybe some of you know it, I'm sorry. No, it's not even a story. Another critical point, although at some level I appreciated them, about LGBT+. Plus. Or now it's LGBTQ+. Plus. It's, uh, no, no irony here. What I want to say is this, that how, uh, how are we to understand this LGBTQ+. Plus? There is one way to understand it, which is the nominalist, empiricist one. The idea is uh, that the official binary sexuality uh, 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 doesn't allow a space for other direction, transgender, whatever. So we should open up the space for 30, 40 sexual or gender. It's always gender, not sex. That's another theory. We don't have time to go into it now. I think what is missing in gender theory is simply sexuality, if you ask me. <laughs> but it's not, uh, so uh, they say I can be bi-gender, tri-gender, asexual, boots, whatever you want. But they, as empiricists, they worry. No? They say, but wait a minute. What if there is some identity that we left out? So let's leave it plus in the sense and all the others. But we should be here good Hegelians and say, what if we can be directly a plus? What if plus, in the sense of self-questioning as such, can be a form of identity which is the only authentic universal identity? It precisely in the sense of, I don't know what for an object I am. But I know that I am. I am not without object. And this, I think, is... I'm now proceeding very fast. This is why, for Lacan, subjectivity is as such feminine, hysterical. Lacan is here a good Freudian. Beware of praising perversion. Perversion always perfectly fits discourse of power. It's a hidden... The hysterical subject... My God, I will use now this very low everyday level uh, 
what men held against women. What is, if you are in love with a woman, the eternal feminine question? Tell me, why do you love me? And it is a very annoying question because it's impossible to answer. The, the moment you answer it, you are no longer in love. Or, to put it in a different way, reasons that you enumerate, whatever, because of your smile, your eyes, whatever, appear as reasons only if you already are in love. The same circle. So what I'm saying here is something very precise. It's that uh, what makes us sexual be is that uh, uh, this plus is something which is constitutive of subjectivity as such. Subjectivity, uh, I am subject only insofar as I cannot identify myself as an object. But this impossibility to identify myself as an object is not, uh, uh, is not, uh, does not mean that I belong to some higher dimension or whatever, but it's, in a way, the deadlock itself, which then gets materialized in our human uh, symbolic practices and so on and so on. Uh, this is also why, for Jacques Lacan, the object cause of desire, object A, is precisely an object which materializes this plus itself. As Lacan put it, object A is precisely, whenever I grab an object, I always, sooner or later, experience, but this is not what I really want. And the object A is precisely that surplus missing from uh, every object. So, uh, what I am to, now, nonetheless, although there are, of course, uh, uh, many other things to say, but I would like to uh, conclude just to make this central point clear. I agree that we should move beyond transcendental circle. But I think the only consistent way to do it is not to, here we may disagree, is not to, and here comes the title, I'm sorry, to break out of this parallax, either naive realism or transcendental circle. But the problem is how to really move out of the transcendental circle. And I think that what we have to think is a certain, maybe Heidegger was sometimes on the way of it when he speaks about, uh, about ontological difference as unterschied, in the more basic sense of a gap. But I think we should go maybe a step further from Heidegger and think this gap not directly as the opening of being, but it's pretty complex, that's why I prefer now to squeeze out to finish, as some kind of a, a crack in the texture of reality, which is not simply equal to humanity. Again, for me, the problem is how reality itself has to be structured to allow for this big bang, which is human subjectivity. 
So again, we should move definitely beyond Kant. It's not that there is crack antinomies just because we are finite subjects, but if we were to gain access to the things in themselves, we would have seen the complete world order. In itself, there is no complete world order. In itself. And I'm not saying that the subject is already in nature. I'm just saying that, again, that we have to conceive as the ultimate reality this kind of a cracked, inconsistent, uh, inconsistent, call it structure, call it imbalance or whatever. And I don't have time to go into it now, but I would have said that here I even disagree with those big poets or religious figures. Which, for example, I was just rereading Beckett, and I found I'm a cheap guy. I put into Google Beckett important quotes saying to Bluff. <laughs> and one is always appearing there, a quote which says something like, uh, uh, every word speech is just a stain on silence and so on, as is silence is what we are aiming at. No, what Beckett doesn't see is that this silence is constituted only by the failure of speech. There is no silence proper without speech. The silence is opened by the failure of speech. So, you see, uh, this is what I'm trying to think as the Lacanian real and so on and so on. Uh, my point is that, uh, and in this sense to conclude, since we are here with Jesuiten, <laughs> where I see, I always make this example to really conclude, I will just mention it, the, uh, uh, the, the, my eternal motive that I return to in Christianity. No? This is for me the ultimate lesson of, of uh, Christianity. You know, in other religions, you have God. And then we pray to God, we try to rejoin God. In Christianity, I'm sorry, something totally different happens. God rejoins us. That is to say, in other religions, let's say you feel yourself abandoned by God. And then through some stupid mystical practices, ascesis, yeah, I can rejoin God. The message of Christianity is no, accept your being abandoned by God, and then uh, identify with Jesus on the cross. How? Jesus on the cross is the point where God himself is abandoned by God, where you see the, the operation. Your being abandoned by God is the very feature which unites you with God, which is why the way to step out of this abandonment. It's not, oh, God will come back and he will, you, and he will help us. No. It's to see, to, just to shift the perspective, but being abandoned by God. Is this not another name for human freedom? That's why in Christianity only you have uh, Heiliger Geist, Holy Spirit, which is the only thing in which, for me, it's meaningful to talk about Christ resurrected. And Holy Spirit, there is no second coming in the sense of, oh, Christ will come at some point. No, I think uh, Christ is already here where you when you have a Heiliger Geist. Precisely, it already happens here, the reconciliation. So you see my point in the same sense as in Christianity. What, 
what the very form of Apira, the very form of, the very gap that appears to separate you from God. The solution is to locate this gap into God himself. Eli Eli Lama Sabaktami means for a moment God is abandoned by by himself. Because this is a big theological problem. I had some debates, I don't know how you would answer, where I asked my theological friends, even here in Munich years ago at the debate, a very simple question. When Christ cries there and says, God, Father, why have you abandoned me? Is he bluffing or not? If he is uh, bluffing, then, and this was a very important Gnostic interpretation, that uh, it's in a way uh, consequent that uh, crucifixion is just a spectacle to impress human beings. But the real spirit of Christ is up there with his father just laughing at us men. So note. But if it's meant seriously, then for a moment there was a radical split in God himself. Or as Chesterton, my favorite theologist, put it, for a moment, God himself became an atheist. And this is, uh, this is for me, again, the ins- and this is what we should do also in ontology, to see the problem gap antagonism, not to resolve it, but to see it as belonging to the thing itself. Nature itself is incomplete. We should abandon all this metaphoric of, you know, uh, uh, we humans, it's from Hegel to Kierkegaard, you find it, we humans are, are, are animals sick to death and so on. No, animals are already sick to death. Do we really need proofs of this? Look at, look at oil and uh, coal. Can we even imagine what kind of imbalance, ecological catastrophe, there must have been happened on earth for us to have oil and uh, coal. <clears throat> there is no nature in the sense of good mother and we evil humans with our hubris, we destroyed it. Nature is a dirty bitch as a mother. <laughs> the ruin, and this is a very serious point. This means that There is no easy solution of blaming ourselves, humanity, and then returning to some balance. We have nowhere to return. Okay, as they say, when you were young, still reading, when I was young, we were still reading him. Now he is out, Karl May Winnetou, you know. And at the end, the Indian says, ich habe gesprochen, no? (laughs) So I've spoken. Thank you very much for your patience. No, no, stop to tell you something else. I had here a Lacanian experience of divided subject because I'm here and my name in the void is there. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> yeah, I think we have, we have time for questions. So. But you can also, if there is any problem, probably with not ask questions of Deutsch, no? Oh, okay. Yeah, I can yeah. manage it, you know. Yeah, Sebastian Gardner. A very quick question. Uh, your solution to the, uh, the transcendental circle, the breaking out, yeah. nature's incompleteness, um, it put me, is it not very similar to late Schelling? Oh, I have a very ambiguous love-hate relationship. Yeah. But, okay, not to lose time, I will tell you what's my solution. It's uh, close to Heidegger's. Heidegger, I think, we may disagree, I'm a great lover of Schelling, 
I wrote I a short book on yeah. the knee of gender. I just think that selling at his most radical were those Stuttgart years and before, Freiheitsschrift, yeah. Weltalter, all that, and that he confronted there a certain deadlock, and then is in his last phase he, in a way, escaped from yes. it, withdrew from it. Yes. But yes, I openly admit, because in Schelling, you already have this basic idea that what he calls this uh, order, pre-ontological order, yeah. before the, world, the word is spoken and so on. This is already his idea of incompleteness and so on. No, no, Schelling is, uh, Schelling is an extremely interesting thinker, I think. And I also think that between him and Hegel, it's a very difficult question. Mm. Obviously, I claim it's the usual story. Schelling didn't understand Hegel. Hegel didn't understand Schelling. Because Hegel has in his Vorlesungen uh, uh, über die Geschichte der Philosophie one paragraph or two about Freiheitsschrift. And it's like pretty close to stupidity what he, what he says there. You know. No, no, this is... I think, I think this is... Uh, the key debate, but where probably, maybe not with you, with others, I would, you would disagree with me. Maybe this is my mistake. I am still convinced, and all of you would disagree here, that, okay, I will give you a cinematic example. I wonder if you would agree. Did you see we all did Hitchcock Vertigo? Yes. You know when Madeleine goes to that, uh, whatever, Sequoia yeah. Park, yeah. and points there on a tree cut and says, I was born here, I died there, you know, no? For me, if the muse of philosophy were yeah. to come, he said, uh, I was born here, 1770, uh, no, Kant's Kritik der Reinen Vernunft, and I died here, 1831. <laughs> Before and after are echoes and so on. No, maybe this is yeah. my limitation, mistake. I know, but yeah. I'm still in love with that period. So many times we thought that Hegel is passé, but he is returning, and sorry, just one, maybe this will, uh, you know, Hegel is usually dismissed as philosopher of this uh, authoritarian state, half-fascist, stende, uh, uh, but uh, the American philosopher, I basically don't agree with him, but he made one good observation, Robert Pippin, this neo-Hegelian, he said, wait a minute, Hegel says in the one of the most famous passages, introduction to forward, forward to Rechtsphilosophie, that, you know, the all of Minerva takes off only in the evening, philosophy comes too late. Okay, but if Hegel was not a complete idiot, shouldn't we accept the fact that this should hold also for Hegel's own description of this ideal state in Rechtsphilosophie? He is not describing, as people automatically assume, a vision of a future rational state. Its time has passed. He is describing a certain possibility which was already lost. And that's why he is describing it. Here, that's why I plead for a return from Marx to Hegel. Marx was too much of a teleological historicist. He thought, in a certain historical moment today, proletarian position, we can see at least a possibility of rational, emancipated future, and so on. Hegel would have never allowed this. Hegel is much more open towards the future. Hegel is 
absolutely not any philosopher of historical determinism. In mm-hmm. For Hegel, future is prohibited, which practically means, and if anything, the whole history of communism of the 20th century confirms it, the Marxist idea was that, in contrast to other historical acts, which were alienated, produced another effect than planned, and so on, with communism, as young Lukács describes it, we have an act, historical act, which you do something and you know what you are doing. No. If there is a lesson, it is that communist revolutions also necessarily go wrong and have to be repeated and so on. And that's a very Hegelian view. I talk too much. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, sorry. Ah, they don't want you to speak freely. You must no, be no, recorded. No, no, <laughs> Very disciplined. Thanks. Uh, so two questions, both about the transcendental circle. So the first question is, um, why exactly do you want to break out of the transcendental circle? So it, it has been gone on for a while, so we are all tired of it in a sense. Yeah. But so what, what is the main reason uh, uh, or what, what frustrates you most about it? Why do we need to get out? What is the reason? That's the first question. Mm. Second question uh, the way you were describing your solution, you were saying the, the operative question that leads to your solution is the question, how must reality or nature be structured such that subjectivity is possible? So it is a transcendental question. So, I mean, the form of the question is transcendental. It's not about the transcendental subject, but a question about a condition of possibility, of subjectivity. So I'm just wondering whether that's actually the, the completion of the transcendental project, right? Uh, or, or whether you, whether you, I mean, whether you agree that uh, that it somehow continues with the type of question that a transcendental project asks, or whether you meant it differently. Uh, that's a very good point. First, uh, why out? Uh, I will say something very naive. I, uh, I will not just give you the historicist reason, which is that obviously at the historical moment where we have today, it's somehow to use these bombastic terms, I think that the transcendental approach exhausted its possibilities because I think that uh, it's very naive what I will say, but I was never satisfied with how, in this broader sense, transcendental thinkers try to reply or react to the this, what many people are afraid of, this breakthrough, cognitivism, brain sciences, and so on and so on. I think that this is uh, very naive, but I think that something, this would be my ultimate reason, isn't something happening today which maybe will change what we usually understand as human nature, in the sense of being human. And as I even repeat myself too much in my books, the, it's not this what everybody is afraid is, we are digitally controlled, blah, blah. I don't care. Although I want to challenge you here with another idea. <clears throat> when people say computers can think and so on already, maybe, all this idea, you know what I always ask them? And maybe there is here among you some, and I would like to hear it. You know, human thought in its specificity It's not just complexity, but it's a certain play with virtual dimension of absence. What do I mean by this? I'm sorry to repeat a joke here, which I, according to my 
vague memory, I must have used it around ten times in the last years in my book, so we go for another one. That scene from Ninochka Lubitsch, you know, when a guy goes to a cafeteria and says, uh, coffee, uh, coffee, uh, coffee without cream, and the waiter says, sorry, sir, we don't have cream, we just have milk, so I cannot give you coffee without cream, I can only give you coffee without milk. Okay, so that's nice dialectical insight. We have three coffees, plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. Materially, they are the same, but, but they are not the same. Negativity is inscribed into the other two. Okay, can a computer catch, can artificial intelligence catch this difference? This purely that, you know, you have a coffee and you'd say this can it clearly see why coffee without cream is not the same as plain coffee, even if they are materially the same? Things here, here go more, much more complex. But again, uh, what worries me more is this. Listen, I'm following it closely, and I was shown some even video clips which horrified me a little bit. The big thing today is, as we all know, the direct digitalization of our brain. Direct link between brain and computer. It's at the beginning, but it's progressing very fast. This means that not only the computer, digital machine, whatever, can already uh, scan and identify some basic things happening in my brain. For example, I was told that just before he died, uh, Stephen Hawking already no longer had to use uh, this little finger, no? His brain was wired and it was enough for him just to... Potentially. I don't know how far will it go, I'm too stupid. me meddling with your brain.
here I, there is one, so that you will not say that I'm a complete idiot, there is one good counter-argument that I got, intelligent, but I don't think it works. It's the radio transmitter theory. It is that, yes, we have an eternal soul, but our brain is like a radio receiver, which is properly structured to receive immaterial signals from the In feminist poetry of the 19th century or whatever, no? And hopefully this era is coming to an end. Sorry. Thank you very much for your um, insightful talk. I want to come back to your idea that we have to think of nature as ontological incomplete and um, that negativity is already a feature of nature, and I'm totally sympathetic with that idea, and I think it's a Hegelian idea.
Idealism is the title of the book, and the Telling you now very briefly, I hope, my history, how I came to this. Then I read many books, many, the usual popular books, and so nonetheless about uh, cognitive or Darwinian explanation of uh, how human thought emerged out of nature. And I was so shocked that first day speed violently on every form of idealism and so on, but then at a certain point, they all use this same metaphor, that human thought emerges when one of them, I quote in one of the books, even uses the term human thought emerges when in a kind of a circle, he compares it to the ice dancer on ice who does this fast circular movement and almost magically rises up in the air. So you must have this kind of a Selbstbeziehung, and again, you find it in a different version in quantum physics and so on. So I claim that, it's big speculation, very risky, that it's as if nature, the way we define nature, nature of ordinary natural sciences, again, it's almost idealist, very radical thesis, is not enough to account for the rise of human symbolic universe. That it is as if there must, been, must have been a dimension described in quantum physics, which was already there, and that that dimension, and I'm not original here, in some sense Roger Penrose, among others, is trying to prove the same, although I'm too stupid to fully understand him. You, you know that, that like... Uh, that, uh, that, again, to understand human thought, you must find in a lower uh, potent, at a lower level, you must go back to, to quantum physics. Because I'm asking a very simple question, which all are struggling with, and it's not yet resolved in quantum physics. Is Copenhagen interpretation, the last version, what are the ontological consequences, to put it very naively, of quantum physics? For over half a century, even more, it was uh, Copenhagen orthodoxy, which simply meant mathematic work, so fuck off, let's forget, 
Forget it. Today, very interesting things are going on. There is a guy called Rovelli, or what, Italian, who writes good introductions, and first I was suspicious that he is bluffing, an idiot. So I asked some of my friends, they told me, no, it's very serious. And it's incredible. Now, you have very good new theories of collapse of wave function without inscribing subjectivity into nature. Then you have this excellent idea of quantum gravity, which changes everything, you know. To put it bluntly, it means that not only stuff, natural stuff, matter, comes in quanta, but also time and space come with quanta. Like, time and space are not infinitely divisible. You have, okay, it's mini, mini, you have minimal jump in time in space. And this is a wonderful thing, because this means you cannot play this game, oh, infinite up and down. No, you cannot go all the way down in time and space. And the consequences are extraordinary. If you ask me, I think we are approaching a great breakthrough there. So, uh, uh, but uh, to go uh, to go uh, to go on, uh, uh, I know I didn't. Again, okay, I don't want to get lost. I know I didn't answer you full, fully. I just wanted to indicate what, in a way, what bothers me, like these epistemological problems of quantum physics, and I, in and the consequences of this for. Uh, breaking out of the transcendental, but not by returning to any naive realist ontology and so on and so on. Because again, I'm just shocked how most of today's thinkers, even if they attack transcendental subjectivity, uh, the, uh, like Habermas is for me pure transcendentalist. He simply, and his whole point is... Uh, you know, but you know what really shocked me with Habermas? It's how, in reaction to this, uh, not what he calls dangerous naturalizing tendencies of humans, right? His idea, his basic answer is that uh, treating human being as just a neural mechanism or what deprives us pragmatically of our dignity and so on and so on. But what about, what shocks me is that, as far as I know, Habermas never asks a simple question. Okay, but what if we are just neuronal mechanisms? I mean, you cannot give to this concrete thesis just an ethical argument. No wonder that Habermas co-published a book, not co-wrote texts, with Ratzinger. Because this, what, isn't it said that Habermas, the ultimate thinker of enlightenment, ended up basically with the most traditional Catholic argument, which is some things are better not to be known, because if we know, then it may hurt our sense of dignity or freedom and so on and so on. But I think we should go to the end here. If for no other reasons, because great powers are already using this and trying to control us like crazy through all this mechanisms. And I'm not a pessimist here. I think that human freedom can be saved. You know what's so interesting? Sorry. to Do you know Benjamin Libet? Oh my God, you should if you talk about this. He's a, a brain scientist at, I think, at, at Berkeley, who 
did the most famous experiment allegedly proving that there is no free will. He did a very simple experiment. He put some men and asked you to do, whenever you want, quickly decide, do a contingent gesture. And he demonstrated that before you decide part of a second, neuronal commands are already on the way to your brain. And most people read this as a proof that there is no free will. Because even with this most contingent act, when you think you are deciding something freely, your brain is just registering something which already happened at the neuronal level. But Benjamin Libet is a great guy. He doesn't read it this way. Very, in a very Hegelian way, he says that, yes, the command is with a delay. But the power of human spirit is to sabotage the command, negativity. And that there, you cannot reduce it in this way. Again, we come at the obstacle, negativity. Here, well, this is why I'm also here a friend of abstraction. It's totally wrong to think about human brain as complicating things. No, machines can do this better. What machines cannot yet do is precisely to simplify things. You have all the data, and then you say, fuck off, only this matters. That's where they have great problems with, with machines. I think, and this is how one should read Hegel, the true power, if you permit me two, three minutes, important theoretical point, the true power is the power of abstraction. Hegel is not a thinker of Vernunft in this sense, take into account all the sides. No, no, no. Hegel, in a key passage to his Phenomenologie des Geistes, said, uh, uh, Verstand, the highest power of them all, absolute power which tears apart. You know, sorry if you know it, that is a nice example. You know which example I like here? Marcel Proust, in one of his boring novels, I don't like them, has this story about how a guy, Marcel, not Proust, but the hero, uh, for the first time speaks with his grandmother from some French village, calls her to Paris, and he remembered his grandmother as a wonderful, gentle old lady. When he hears her voice alone, he all of a sudden becomes aware that this is an ugly, cracking, vulgar voice and so on. Via telephone. So, yeah, via telephone, yes. And then he goes to Paris, meets her, and this abstract experience of the voice spoils her, his entire image of her. He all of a sudden uh, sees he's a vulgar lady and so on. This is Hegelian totality. You must first do this violent abstraction. And then you return to totality, but colored by this abstraction. And this is also how I read critique of ideology. A beautiful lady, fuck you, you are a dirty old bitch. Because I watch you from the perspective of that and that's the power of abstraction, to select, to, you know what I mean, like uh, abstraction for Hegel never disappears. How can I prove this? Sorry. Uh, three moments in Hegel's system that people don't simply read. First, beginning of anthropology in third part of Philosophie des Geistes. Hegel is there better than Foucault. You know what he says about madness, that to pass from animal self-sentiment to human mind, you must go at least virtually to a point of madness so that 
Human reason is, again, a reaction. The only way to understand human reasoning is as a reaction, as an attempt to control a potential threat of madness. And Kegel says, no, this doesn't mean we all have to be mad, but the threat is here. The second of these elements is, uh, is of course, uh, war. Hegel does not end, people forget this, Hegel does not end his philosophy of history with some happy vision of corporate fascist state. He ends it with war. And even polemics against Kant, you know. And the third element, I think Hegel fails here to be Hegelian enough, is sexuality. His vision of sex is still a natural substance, civilized, cultivated. But as a Hegelian, he should have known that between natural instinctual mating and human sexuality, we write songs, whatever, seduce, there must be some moment of absolute passion. Of So again, that would be my Hegel. I really speak too much. I mean, you should tell me, du hast gesprochen. On, and I, uh, <laughs> I would say we, we have one more question and then we... we That's what I wanted to hear. So that now I can be yeah, hypocritical right. and tell you, I would like so much to go on, but... Uh, <laughs> But okay. we will be there in the morning, uh, yeah. although you are the star in the evening, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Because uh, is it translated into German? With all our animosity, but I still love immensely your... Is it immaterialism? This must be some neo-Nazi plot. That's all I can. No, no, it's really, if you want to understand him, it's an excellent social example that is Dutch company, no? And it's simply, it's the best self-introduction... To you, you get into the topic. Is there a better one? No, I had the most fun writing that one, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, but did it, they at least uh, bought the copyrights? Not in German, I don't think. They will, they will. So. <laughs> yeah, when Afede will be in power. <laughs> 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 Sorry, please. The gap. So you uh, talked um, clearly about the gap internal uh, to nature and not on the border between um, na nature and the normative. But uh, is, is it not like this that you talked about two gaps, namely uh, when you talked about the plus and the silence, you talked um, about the gap internal to our normative practice and linguistic discursive yeah. uh, practices. Because, so when, when Beckett talks about silence, this silence is the effect of our discursive practices, and then this negativity would be internal um, to, um, to yeah, our yeah, normativity. Yeah, yeah. So in how you relate these two gaps, how you relate the gap um, within nature, you focused in your talk, to the different gap with, uh, within our normative practices. It's an excellent question, but first I would have said that one way to formulate my, the problem that's bothering it is simply that I find non-satisfactory this uh, neo-Kantian Habermasian idea that we simply cannot deduce ought from is, sollen from sein, that uh, that uh, the normative dimension I is irreducible. I think that precisely the gap that I'm mentioning is not simply the gap between normative and factual, but it's a gap in the factual order itself, which opens up the space for 
the space for normativity. And I think that, I don't know if you follow him, even Derrida made here a compromise because at a certain point he fell back, I think, into normativity. When he started to talk about infinite uh, justice, undeconstructible condition of deconstruction, and so on and so on. So I would say that, uh, that uh, my idea is precisely the question that normativists don't want to raise, and this is also my reproach to people who now produce very elaborate readings of Hegel and so on, the Pittsburgh Hegelians and also Pippin, Pippin, Brandom, and so on. Uh, they, their, again, transcendental horizon is that our logic, our human mind, is a normative machine. That it's never simply facts, you have to argue, argue for facts, and so on, and so on. But how... I never saw how would they pass from the order of being, how would they combine the two. Simply, for me as a philosopher, you cannot, this cannot be the ultimate fact. That, you know, what something must be like a, a gap in reality, in pre-normative reality, some gap must be here to open up the space for normativity, if not, I'm giving you a very simplified line now, if not, then the only conclusion is, the conclusion which is of majority of cognitive sciences today, that normativity is our subjective illusion. You know that in nature there are no norms, it's simply you react in a certain way and so on, it's all habits and so on, and that, no, I think that uh, I think that uh, normativity, or, okay, I will just to finish, uh, produce another paradox. Uh, transcendental philosophers like to point out, and that is Habermas's eternal reproach against deconstructionists and so on, that against even Adorno and Horkheimer, that they do a good critique of our alienated, blah, blah, verwaltet Welt societies, but they lack a positive normative foundation. I think that precisely lack can come first. It's not that when you experience a lack, you must already have an implicit positive measure. No, I think that the disorientation out of joint lack comes first. And positive normativity is... Uh, in a way, uh, 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 a reaction to this lack, and so on, and so on. But I know I didn't okay. answer you, but it's a crucial question. Okay. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for your talk. I think we stop here.